What shaped the mind of C.S. Lewis? Many of us know Lewis only through his Narnia chronicles, but we might not know his work as a professor of medieval literature. We're here to talk about the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis is Jason Baxter, who's the Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, Wyoming in the States. He's the author of a number of books, including A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Comedy. But he's with us today to talk about his new book from IVP America, InterVarsity Press, called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a great mind. Jason joins us now from the States. Jason, hi, how are you? Hi, so well, thank you. So grateful to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to uh, for you to be with us. Thank you so much. Now, in what sense was C.S. Lewis a f- far more a man of the medieval age than he was of our own? That's right. That's the outrageous claim that he makes in his 1954 address that he gave when he took it, when Cambridge uh, bought him off of Oxford. And he gave this extraordinary address. It's only about seven pages. And I think it's maybe the closest thing that C.S. Lewis has to his philosophy of history, as well as maybe some pieces from Abolition of Man and uh, the introduction to his uh, book on 16th century English literature. But there he makes the, the really fun claim that he was a sort of expatriate to modernity. And he had become a naturalized citizen of the Middle Ages because he had read these things with so much care, with so much attentiveness to the metrical schemes and the rhymes. And he had spent so many hours looking up old words and medieval lexicons that he had, and this is a very important metaphor for C.S. Lewis, he had been breathing in the atmosphere of the Middle Ages, such that much like the children, when they go to Narnia and breathe Narnian air, and they remember their strength and their sinews and their bones, and they remember that they once were kings and queens at this deep kind of visceral level, Lewis seemingly thought that the same sort of thing, same sort of process had happened to him by means of longevity and fidelity to accumulating the details of his craft. Why, why was atmosphere? He writes a lot about atmosphere and climate, doesn't he? And why were they so important for him when it comes to came to literature? Oh, I, I love this, and this is something that I myself want to know more about, and um, and hopefully will soon. But he, he he says some extraordinary things about literature. He doesn't think that literature is just ideas and concepts dressed up and philosophical, you know, dressed up in literary or poetical garb, but that literature provides a mode of viewing the world, what he calls elsewhere, viewing along the beam as opposed to looking at the beam. And Michael Ward has written really beautifully about this in his Planet Narnia. But Lewis seems to think that this whole kind of mode of engagement in this literary is what I sometimes like to call the point of view shot. It's, it's a, borrowing a, a metaphor from cinema. It's what the world looks like and feels like uh, from, from within. And Lewis, over the course of his life, kept writing about what it felt like to read literature because he had loved it from the time of his youth. Um, and so in some of his works, like an experiment uh, in criticism, he begins to suggest what literature can do. And if you, if you add up all the different metaphors that he's you know, constantly adopting and discarding. Sometimes he says literature provides climate. Sometimes he says it provides the breathing atmosphere. Sometimes it's the weather. Sometimes he calls it enjoyment as opposed to contemplation. Sometimes he says it's looking along the beam of that light, seeing the sky uh, as opposed to looking at the beam and seeing it sort of suspended in the dust particles. So he's got a, uh, oh, and another occasion, 
he, he obviously Lewis was an avid walker, um, as I'm sure all of your listeners and listeners know. But he sometimes refers to it as the difference between studying a contour map and then throwing the map away and enjoying that what he calls that wise passivity of walking through a landscape. So landscapes, climate, weather, this is all the secret of, of literature. And a lot of what my book is about is a Lewis who pivots back and forth from the contemplative to the uh, enjoyment moving back and forth as a scholar and looking at, and then as a, as a lover, as a reader, as a literary scholar, looking along and moving into that mode of enjoyment. And I think for Lewis, it's not just a readerly thing, but I think that has important spiritual implications for how we think about the relationship between, um, the relationship between our reading and also our, our relationship between living something out that I think that follows that analogy of that sort of pivoting between contemplation, enjoyment, looking at, looking along. Coming on to the, um, the medieval influence of, of Lewis, but how do each of the planets, this is an, an, a strange to us, but an important part of medieval thinking, isn't it? That the planets each had characters or atmospheres or humors or, and, and reflected the temperaments in creation. How do each of the planets provide the weather for each of the Narnia books? Right. Well, that is, that is a great Michael Ward question. And I don't feel like I can, uh, you know, enter into his, uh, his territory too much. But one thing I, I think I, I can just sort of add to his additional, add in addition to his excellent work is this, that in the medieval imagination, in addition to these, these, these planetary bodies having kind of personalities as, as so brilliantly described in this spooky seance and that hideous strength, where they all come down and exert their influence and kind of, and, and then this is also, again, what he's thinking in, in screw tape letters, right? Is that the way these spiritual forces exert influence on us is, and this is just classic medieval, you could find this in Evagrius, is creating kind of, I guess you could call spiritual fields, magnetic fields in which certain responses seem like the smartest thing to do. We all know this, I think, with respect to you know our vicious inclinations with with lust or 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 avarice or pride or envy. Sometimes our, our reason suggests that this particular you know choice or behavior was, was is detrimental to our well being and really everything we want. And yet, it feels like this sort of palpable field. Lewis was really interested in that, and not only diabolical temptation, but also in these kind of funny, uh, strange seance of these planetary bodies. In other words, there could be something like positive spiritual magnetic fields in which the most rational thing in the world feels like me being brave or feels like me being uh, clever with respect to Mercury or with me uh, falling in love with, uh, with the sensuous beauty of the world as in the case of Venus or, or the infinite profound cold depths of, of contemplation with respect to Saturn. But the one thing that I think also I'd like to add is in the medieval imagination, the, the earth, of course, is at the middle of the universe. We all have been taught how foolish the medievals are uh, since, uh, since high school. But the planetary bodies are spaced out in chords in the same mathematical proportions that you know, a medieval cythera would have been. And so the medievals, barely using a metaphor, oftentimes referred to the world as a symphony or the world as a lute. And so embedded within the world is an up soul uplifting harmonic power in the fabric of the universe, which it is the goal of the artist 
the architect, the painter, or the poet to expose to the world and sort of render that which we've become blind to visible once again through x-ray vision. And so one of my favorite things to say is that what modern empirical science is for us, what, you know, x-ray detectors are and gamma ray detectors and Hubble telescope and particle accelerators are to us, architecture and painting and poetry are for the Middle Ages. That was their cutting edge technology. What was the role of the musician then in the Middle Ages? I, I wish I could just, uh, I, I know exactly where my book is. It's just on the other side of my computer. I could grab it for you. But if your listeners want to not just take my word for it, well, I guess they could always read it in the book. But if, if they want to know that I'm not making this stuff up, the, the clearest, most beautiful, succinct passage is the famous, for the, Middle, for the medievals at least, Dream of Scipio scene. It comes at the end of Cicero's own De Republica his own attempt to write a Roman Latin response to the more famous Platonic Greek Republic. And so Cicero, you know, Latinizes it. But just as at the end of Plato's Republic, there's the famous myth of Ur that talks about this, you know, transmigration of souls and reincarnation. Cicero does his own Roman Latin version of that in which he has a, the, 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 the so-called dream of Scipio, the, the general, who's taken up to the apex of the universe in a way that anticipates Dante. And he's made to look down and see the harmonic cosmos spinning beneath his feet. And in that, he's given a visual vision, so to speak, of the harmonic, of the harmonic structure of the world. And Scipio says, this is delightful. How come I've never heard this before? And the explanation is, just as if you live at the source of a waterfall, you could become deaf to it over the course of the years. Just stop hearing it as, I mean, anyone who lives near a major motorway, I'm sure, knows the experience, right? You eventually tune out, uh, you know, for us, the, well, we don't have any, hardly any interstates in Wyoming. It's a very sparsely populated remote place. But if we did live near interstates, um, you eventually sort of tune out that noise if you live near an airport and so forth. So the medievals thought that you, over the course of time, you tune out the positive noise to what they called the harmonia mundi, the symphonic structure of the universe. And so the musician, uh, think of medieval polyphony, um, you know, something from like the, you know, the Notre Dame school in the 12th century or, um, or a Guillaume de Machaut, or, you know, even going into a kind of Thomas Tallis, his, his 42 part. 42 part part motet of spem volume. Yes, yeah, so beautiful. I think the medieval musician thinks that he's doing something. This might be, I, I have a feeling this metaphor even extends into Vivaldi. That what they when he's writing the seasons, what they think they are doing are sort of providing an X-ray of the universe so that we can see that harmonic structure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, using synesthesia here, we can hear and see the harmonic structure all over again. And of course, what happens was well, even in Shakespeare, right? Um, the beginning of Twelfth Night, how strange it is that men's souls go into rapture over sheep's gut. Or maybe I'm thinking much ado about nothing. But in any case, it's all over Shakespeare. The strange experience we've all had in listening to beautiful music, the experience of rapture and ecstasy, the medievals just explained, well, congratulations. You're retuned to the cosmos again. Yeah, how did the medieval musical idea of the universe find its way into Lewis's fiction? I mean, I'm thinking of the creation account and the magician's nephew. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, so yes, in, um, in that wonderful, wonderful book, um, we find the, the creation of Narnia, right? Where the, where the children along with uncle Andrew and Jadis are jumping from world to world. And eventually they go into a portal and they show up in Narnia, but Narnia, as it was in the beginning, you know, when, I don't know that, can we modify it slightly? When the, the spirit of Aslan was hovering over the face of the deep, right? And then of course, Aslan begins singing. And I, I liken it to a, a Gustav Mahler symphony, even though maybe uh, the planets is, uh, is, is a better uh, likeness because we know that Lewis knew it and mentions it a couple of times, Michael Ward tells us in his letters. But um, in any case, I, I always think of it as a Mahler symphony, like the first, Mahler's first symphony, um, where Mahler's sort of constructing these primal chords. And Aslan sings the cosmos into being, and the stars have a kind of sing in their high treble clef and, and the earth sings in its low bass notes. And then there's a sort of blending of all these things. And the children, of course, are in rapture and so is the cabbie. And, and it's a music which can make them all, uh, make the children mature and make, the, and make those in their synecdoche young and youthful again and feel the, the, the fire of melody again. And... For Uncle Andrew, it only makes him more greedy. He doesn't have eyes to see. He sees the pure profitability of this new world. Right? What, what, what's Columbus with the new world with respect to this one? The pure profit, profit of the potential. He can't see it. He can't feel it. And in and, and this way, Uncle Andrew's a modern. He's, he's us <laughs> on our worst days. He lives in what Jacques Ellul calls a technological society in which he measures human souls in terms of their market productivity. And he measures human activities in terms of their, their work functions. And so it's, it's funny that Lewis wants just to remind us of <laughs> what he calls the evil enchantment of the modern ages in the weight of glory. I think it's a very interesting and comedic note, but it, it shows up in Magician's Nephew. Yes, Lewis didn't like modernism, did he? What, what was his problem with modernism? I think he thought that, well, at one point he calls it that it suffers from chronological snobbery. And I think he thought that, that ultimately, I'm going to refer to your title, God's story is elusive and it's presumptuous. Think of the multiverse too, right? Lewis's crazy thought experiment that maybe there are multiple intelligent races spread throughout maybe multi, multiple universes, all of which are playing out in some sense, the same salvation story, but in some sense different, depending on their own actions within their own histories, right? If Lewis is playing around with this idea, then seemingly what's going on is that, you know, God's story is elusive, it's deep. And thus the modern presumption, one, to know what it is, and two, to think we can take control of the reins of society. Um, he calls it at one point in, in Abolition of Man, the, the subjection of everything to the technological impulse to control. It's the Baconian revolution. It's seeing the world in terms of it as a just big, gigantic, inertial resource of matter. I imagine this is speaking to the heart of, uh, of New Zealanders, who I think are very keen on this on these kind of ecological elements, much more so than uh, um, uh, my countrymen in the enlightened North America. 
right? But to see the world not as a set of inertial matter and resources to shape into that which I desire for technological purposes, but having its own story. I think Lewis felt that way very deeply. And that's what worried him, I think, about technological modernity. Or as again, as he puts it in, in Abolition of Man, that science and magic, which is a little embarrassing to scientists, have a secret similarity. Both are chiefly re relate to the world in terms of power and control. But there's other, this aesthetic, spiritual listening um, to sort of listen in onto the world and hear its heartbeat and love its existence independently of whether or not you can make something from it for you. I think Lewis loved that, that spiritual sense, that aesthetic sense. I mean, dare we call it, you know, Lewis and deep ecology. But I think in some sense, he was a little, um, he was a little ahead of his times by means of being really behind his times. Yes, but he had a very interesting view of the chronology of the medieval period. He took it right up to the Romantic movement, didn't he? Is, if, am I correct in thinking that? Yeah. Yeah, I think very he's... Very long he, Middle Ages. Yeah, he's kind of fun about that. Yeah, I, I try to develop that, that, uh, that playful term of the long medieval period, in which, I mean, he's too good of a reader and too good of a historian, obviously, not to know that there are differences. And again, if, you're, if your listeners are excited about this, you can go look at this Cambridge inaugural address called De Descriptione Temporum, right, on a description of the historical ages. But I think, and this is where I think um, Lewis as, and I try to develop this term as Lewis as the modern Boethius, Lewis as the British Boethius. He felt he was in a similar position to Boethius. That is, Boethius dies in the 520s, uh, is executed by Theodoric, um, felt that in a world in which Greek learning was, was almost certainly going to be lost, and he was right. He was trying to shore up as much of the classical learning as he could. And so Boethius didn't have the luxury to sort of parse the differences between Plato, Homer, Virgil, and Seneca, but rather was just trying to save them at, in the, the biggest picture possible. He was living in an age of barbarism, Lewis says, and thus had to save the big story. Analogously, I think Lewis regularly referred to his age as a kind of new proletarian barbarism, an age which was cut off from the past and arrogant about it, an age which felt it had no more need of you know, worthless classical studies, didn't need to be tethered and fettered um, and imprisoned by old text, but in this new technological modernity, could make itself and make its world what it pleased. I think Lewis thought it was a new form of barbarism. And thus, like a modern British Boethius, he didn't have the luxury of saying, well, you know, technically Albert the Great would have thought this, whereas uh, Sir Walter Scott this, but rather wanted to tell the big story in general of what from Homer <laughs> outrageously to Jane Austen had more in common with each other than Jane Austen has with us, even though there's only centuries separating us as opposed to millennia separating Homer and Jane Austen. So I think in that sense, that's the long middle ages. And again, that's what shows up again in, in, in his discussion of the Tao in Abolition of Man. And that's what he felt most called to talk about in big picture ways, the long middle ages, or I guess what you could say, that way of thinking about the cosmos and the consequent way we think about human psychology and ethics, right? Our cosmology gets into our psychology, if that makes sense, before the advent of the machine. That for him was the game changer. 
Why did Lewis believe that it changes in cosmology? If, if the worldview changed in society, how did that produce changes in psychology and ethics? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. I was, I was really hoping this. I, I scratched this down right before I, right before I signed in to, to speak with you. I think if, you're, if your audience wants to see this, I'd recommend looking up an image, Googling an image of Roy Lichtenstein's Wham! W-H-A-A-M! Exclamation point. Wham! It's a jet fighter. <laughs> it's very American. I apologize to your audience. Don't apologize. Um, you love things American. <laughs> um, it's, it's a very American jet fighter launching a missile and just destroying his enemy. And when you look at this image, first of all, it's done in what's so-called dot matrix, right? In the sort of cartoonish style. It's a print medium to save money on ink, but it just so brilliantly captures the modern imagination of our isolated picture of atoms colliding and also our sort of secret belief, Lewis is so good on this, that although only meaning, and this is just pure on sort of, you know, Cartesian dualism, meaning lies within my head, within my will, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, modernity. And I can, you know, inflict my desires on the material reality around me. And so scholars talk about sort of modernity as being gendered masculine, tool-using, ape-like men who destroy and disassemble and reassemble in an engineering fashion through tools and instruments as sort of being the apotheosis of modernity. Lichtenstein, you've got Newtonian, Newtonian physics with Cartesian psychology in a single image. That's what I mean. Our cosmology affects our psychology, as well as maybe even our aesthetics. What we go and look for as beautiful what do we pay attention to in modernity? We pay attention to force, to acceleration, to amplitude, right? We're, we're in the world in which these things have become so obvious that those are the things that make our, our, our heart rate elevate. Basically, the properties of Newtonian physics, force, acceleration, right? Violence in some sense of, of a will. Oppenheimer, right? Oppenheimer's description of what it felt like to, to detonate a nuclear bomb it's, and to basically to feel like a god lifting the nuclear you know, fusion of a star. It's, it's terrifying, but he speaks on behalf of modernity. If that's us, what happens before the clock, before the engine, before nuclear reactors, before any of that stuff got into our blood, got into our pulses, there's a reason that we go and read old books and they feel slow to us and feel different. And I think, and Lewis, I think Lewis was keen on this, as I said, is because psychology follows cosmology. Mm. Why did Lewis feel that it must have been easier to write poetry in the Middle Ages? Yes, I love that part. Oh, you've read my you've read my book. <laughs> I, I I'm afraid to shock you. I have. I'm one of the apparently. I'm told I'm one of the few yeah. interviewers who bother reading people's books. <laughs> well, it's a little intimidating when you know that someone knows what he's talking about. It's intimidating. You wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I don't remember it. Um, in my chapter, why Lewis loved Dante, uh, the epigram is drawn from one of C.S. Lewis's scholarly essays. He says, "I think Dante's poetry, on the whole." the greatest of all the poetry I have read yet when it is at its highest pitch of excellence, I hardly feel that Dante has very much to do. In other words, Lewis's hilarious sort of backhanded compliment is that for Dante, 
poetry was like a large rock at the top of the hill, which was already almost about to start rolling down. And Dante just lightly touches it and causes the, the process to begin. I think it's, you know, it's precisely because of this idea that the cosmos is like a Gothic cathedral or like a polyphonic hymn in that, or, I, or he says elsewhere too, like an icon. And the best place to go to, to, you know, to read about this and Lewis is his wonderful sermon, makes it into my top three things of, of Lewis, in my opinion, transposition, in which he talks about the sort of icon of, uh, of the world as always trying to point to that more elusive spiritual quality. That's what the medievals thought that poetry did, because that's what they thought that the cosmos did. And so if you just write a realist work of fiction, like Dante did, in which he gets his world into poetry, and also orders it into these harmonic structures of tercets and rhyme schemes and so forth, Dante has just taken a supremely poetical object, the cathedral of the universe, and then just happened to record it into human language and verse. Thus, 82% of Dante's poetical work was already done for him just by describing what the world was like, more or less, thanks Lewis. Yes, Lewis uh, had this idea that we carried our world about us in our language, didn't he? Was that a reflection of his view of the medieval universe? Right. I don't, well, I wonder if that is medieval. Um, Lewis has this lovely, lovely sort of description that, um, you know, saying heaven in English or um, cello in Italian doesn't mean the same thing. Um, these words have different cognitive nuances, and thus the objects or that which we privilege, you know, appear for us in our linguistic imaginary worlds differently. And if you go ahead and connect that up to the idea we were talking about previously, as the, our cosmology being the great framework and all the secret metaphors, right? Again, just this is a, a crude and obvious example. But if we just think about if you're talking about, I don't know, the digital world and marketing and trends and sales and waves, all of these sort of secret metaphors are all derived from this sort of pattern of Newtonian mechanics of, of force and mass. And those are the metaphors which operate within us that control at the sort of subterranean level of our minds, the words we use and how we use them and what we picture when we say them, or whether or not we've forgotten the secret organic metaphors as Lewis and his friend Barfield were so um, attuned to, right? I think that is the sense in which we carry our worlds within our linguistic worlds. And over the course of time, these things, just like a sort of, you know, a geological space, change with sort of erosion and changes, but thus, um, and this, is, this incidentally is one of Lewis's many arguments for why we need old books, because we need to encounter our own blind spots built into us by the very limitations of our cosmic backgrounds, which get into us by means of our linguistic worlds. And in this way, Lewis is, again, sort of saying in a clearer way what someone like Wittgenstein wants to say in a less clear way. <laughs> Final question, because time is just about up. Sadly, it's been a fascinating discussion. But in what ways did Lewis think that ancient pagan writers and cultures foresaw the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, that's lovely. 
I think this is something that he is, uh, I'll jokingly say, plagiarizing from Dante, but less negative connotation recycling. That Dante has this lovely moment in which his character in the middle of Purgatorio, in the Purgatorio 20s, 22, I think, um, Statius meets Virgil. And Dante does a little bit of fan lit and writes in this background story, which uh, I think Dante invented, in which Statius tells Virgil, you converted me. No one knows this except Dante. <laughs> but uh, though, though a pagan Roman, I converted to Christianity. And it was because of your fourth eclogue, O Virgil. Now, the fourth eclogue is in this series of pastoral poems in which praises the shepherd's life and the joys of sleeping in a, under a shady tree in the middle of summer and playing near a flute in the, in the fresh countryside. But Virgil takes a break from all that pastoral business in the fourth eclogue and gives what, what shocked and, and the medievals loved, so-called the messianic hymn in which he says things, which I think scholars are still confused by, which sound like he's borrowing from uh, Isaiah in the prediction of the Messiah. He talks about the lion lying down with the lamb and, and the, the viper loosening its venom and the child will play with the snake and so forth. And, and, and these sort of extraordinary sort of sharing of metaphors with, with, uh, with you know, these predictions of, um, of the Messiah in, in, in Isaiah. In that way, I think Lewis thinking about this scene, this lovely scene from Dante, thinks that the pagans in a way, following the Tao, had a degree of natural piety and justice, which they followed the road of human perfection so far that they began to feel the painful need of their own spiritual limitations and thus had something like the desire for a Messiah and basically sort of in their, yeah, again, in their own sort of piety and desire to worship had come to the point where something analogous to uh, a Christ had begun to feel a painful spiritual lack. So I guess you could say being led to the need for the gospel by means of paying attention to the achings of their own heart, the inner wound, as Lewis calls it in more than one place. Well, uh, Jason Baxter, we could go on talking all day about C.S. Lewis. There's so much in this book. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to read it. If you love Lewis, uh, if you love the Middle Ages, if you love medieval literature, please. It's uh, published by InterVarsity Press, IVP America. It's called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. And I meant to ask you, I've got one more question. Can I slot it in my roundup? I don't normally do this. Medieval cathedrals. How do medieval cathedrals reflect this view of the universe that you've been telling us about? Just briefly, can you? Whew. All right, I'll try to do it in 60 seconds. And no, not 60 seconds, but, you know. Oh, okay, 90 seconds. 90. I appreciate the generosity then. Um, <laughs> However long it takes. I think if you want to feel this, um, I, I've written on this. I wrote a piece called What We Lost at Notre Dame de Paris. Yes, you did. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think what you do is you go read this funny little treatise by Hugh of St. Victor called On the Three Days, the Tribus Diabus, On the Three Days, in which Hugh says, Hugh has this Gerard Manley Hopkins kind of moment in which he just falls in love with the delicious diversity of the world. He's the, he conducts this meditation in which he says, the Lord could have made the world in which we just drank water and ate bread, but he gave us all these other types of foods. Why? Because of his benevolence. 
The Lord could have made the world in black and white, but then he gave us color. The Lord could have made the world of a sort of limited species, kind of like we're rendering it, um, species death, but that's another story for another time. But he didn't. He gave us crickets with their little teeth and birds with their, with their patterned wings. And, and he goes on and on. And he just heaps up this huge kind of uh, vision of the hilarious diversity and abundance, because what we might call ecological biodiversity, of the world. And Hugh delights in this. If you read that and then get yourself to a medieval cathedral, um, a Chartres or a Salisbury, and go in, what you recognize is that there's a similar aesthetic. These cathedrals are shaped out in gigantic, harmonic, you know, geometrical and arithmetical blocks of structure. So they have a kind of skeleton of, of, of harmonics. And yet within that, they're as varied as they can be. Windows have the lovely sort of twisting tracery. The, the, all the windows together try to tell as many stories as they can. You find weird gargoyles. You find crease, you know, creatures from the demonic to the angelic all spread throughout this world. And the aesthetic response we have to it is we almost sort of laugh. This feeling of uplift, of the abundance of this place. I think the medievals thought they were retuning our souls to the nature of the world. And uh, that's what their poetry is. That's what their cathedrals are. And I also think if you remember all those funny moments in Lewis... All of a sudden, you have this procession of Bacchus or Dionysius breaking into the scene, this hilarious, uproarious joy. It's Lewis trying to use a rock hammer to smash our little tiny paradigms about what Christianity is. And that is yet another borrowing from the medieval period, if I'm correct. Mm, I'm sure you are. Thank you. Jason Baxter. The book, uh, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind, is out from InterVarsity Press. Jason, thank you so much for your time. This has been a delight, and I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Oh, I'm grateful. <laughs> thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash Podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.